With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 369. It's a year-end Q&A episode. I sent out an email to the Insider's Guide email list and asked for questions on money, investing, the economy, really on anything. We received over 80 questions. I'll answer about a dozen, but many of the other questions will be used in future episodes of the show because all of the questions were very, very good. This is the last episode of the year. We're taking our year-end break. We have a family wedding. We have the holidays. And so our next episode, episode 370, will be released on Wednesday, January 12th. Here's the first question. The money for the rest of us approach to valuing most investments is cash flow, expected cash flow growth, and what investors are paying for that cash flow. Are there other formulas that are commonly used? If so, what makes this formula more compelling? Cash flow, cash flow growth, and what investors are paying for the cash flow are really what we use to estimate investment returns. So forecasting returns. A component of that is valuations. And so we can value assets based on cash flow. So what's the price to cash flow? We can look at investments on a price-to-earnings basis. We can look at their yield relative to historical yields. We can look at valuation on different accounting metrics, such as price-to-book. For calculating expected returns, we use those three components because that is the underlying math of investment returns, of calculating performance. Now, sometimes we use different words for that. But at its core, it's the income plus the capital appreciation of the asset. Your return of any asset will be a function of the income, if there is income, the rent, interest, dividends. And the second is, did the asset go up in price? Was there appreciation? If it's an apartment building, rental real estate, how much net income is there each year after expenses? And when you're ready to sell that building, well, you're able to sell it for more than what you paid. I don't know of any other way to calculate returns or estimate expected returns because that's just the way the math is. As an investment advisor, we would generate performance reports for clients using those elements. And so that's how it's done. But there are definitely other ways to actually value an asset to decide if it's overvalued or undervalued or not. But those three components of cash flow, cash flow growth, and what investors are paying for that cash flow now versus later are the underlying elements to get to the income and the capital appreciation, which is what performance is. 
As a follow-up, there's a question from a different listener on, is there an accurate way to estimate asset returns over a longer period of time than 10 years, specifically 30 years? This listener is in his 30s and feels like that's a more appropriate time horizon. In this case, it's the same principle. It's just even more of a guess. On Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we estimate returns using a 10-year time horizon, but even a decade's a long time. Will there be a recession during that period? What will investors be willing to pay 10 years from now for different asset classes? We just don't know. So we look at starting conditions. What are the starting yields? And you could do the same for a 30-year time horizon and then come up with an estimate for how that income would grow over time and what investors would pay many, many years down the road. The purpose of this is often just to be able to compare different investments rather than trying to be an accurate forecast because there's a wide range of possibilities. But we have to start somewhere, and I am most comfortable starting where markets are today. What are the attributes of markets today? And then estimate how that might change going forward. The next question is a listener mentioned that he learned about Nassim Nicholas Taleb through my show. This listener has been influenced from some of Taleb's work. I'm somewhat ambivalent about Taleb because he could be a little overbearing on Twitter and in other forms, but he clearly has some ideas that have impacted how I approach the financial markets. One of the things this listener has been helpful about Taleb's work is a recognition that we underestimate existential risks associated with certain asset classes. For example, the assumption that stock ownership in its current form will persist forever. We assume that stocks will continue to pay income and that income will grow over time, which gets to the basis of capitalism, that there will be economic growth over time that will allow earnings and dividends to grow. But we don't know. The listener points out that there are some emerging alternative organizational ownership structures, such as decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAO, that we talked about last week, that could put traditional stock ownership at risk. The listener has considered crypto and other currency investments to be a kind of a speculation, but he's wondering, with these new organizational structures, will they be more like investments than speculations? Finally, his question is, are we exposing ourselves to a new type of ownership structure risk by overweighting traditional stocks relative to DAOs and other blockchain-based organizations? One of the things that Talib teaches is the Lindy effect, which is that the longer something has survived, the more likely it will continue to survive. Longevity suggests something is resistant to change more resilient. After releasing the Dow episode, I've thought more about that. And yes, it is new. It's a new organizational structure. But there is a Lindy effect with stock ownership, limited liability, board of directors, management teams, and how all of those work together. Whereas Dow's, this community-driven organizations on the blockchain are brand new. I have been following a specific DAO, SushiSwap, which is a DeFi platform where you can trade, earn yields, and other aspects. 
there's been controversy with this particular DAO, with the leadership. Some of the leadership has quit. And if you go onto the forum and look at all the proposals, it's kind of a madhouse. There's a proposal for a community election of a new interim CEO, another one to nominate a particular individual to be the CTO. There's a proposal for a compensation framework, another for governance process, complete restructuring of the company. There's a proposal to fire one of the leaders due to stealing money. There's a proposal to bring in a, somebody else to help manage the team. If you go through some of the proposals and look at just sort of the chaos that that DAO has experienced, I come back to that DAOs might be best for just simpler applications, a more narrow focus. We'll see how these develop and we'll continue to discuss them, but I'm not convinced that a DAO will replace traditional stocks, at least based on some of the development pains that we're seeing right now with DAOs. Here's a question. Would you share some ideas on how to engage family, including your spouse, in the process of learning about investing? I feel a lot of times discussions about investing money in the economy cause folks in my family to zone out. I asked that question to LaPrille. She replied, what? As she zoned out. On a more serious note, she pointed out that finance, investing, these topics are more interesting to her when we tell stories about other people, about companies. And so not just concepts, but examples, some narrative. I try to do that with the podcast. Sometimes it's challenging. The reality is it's just easier to data dump, but we have to give examples. We have to share experiences and stories to make it interesting. We also have to recognize that not everyone will be interested in those topics. Maybe there's only certain occasions when they express interest that we can share something, particularly if there's a good story related to it or it impacts us personally. I found with our children that they become more interested in particular investing in economic topics when they have a problem that they need solved or they need some advice. And then we can work through that and that becomes an opportunity to learn. We have a question from a listener who lives in India and is in their 20s, and has been wanting to invest for a while now. This person has learned some basic terms of investing in the stock market, has a long-term outlook, but is a beginner and can't decide which company to invest in or where to get trusted and reliable information. The key to investing is to just start. The first investment that I ever owned as an adult was I was an undergrad at University of Cincinnati, and I bought a money market mutual fund. I felt like a genius because I had managed to buy a fund that was yielding 5 or 6% at the time. I didn't really understand what a money market mutual fund was, how it was invested in commercial paper and things like that, but it was just a baby step. Later, I bought some individual stocks. Novell was the first stock I ever bought. But what you find is you learn as you go. You'll make mistakes. Really, the best way to go about it is to start with a fund or an ETF that's investing in an asset class. But for many new investors, that's not interesting. So many investors have learned by buying individual stocks. I certainly learned that way and realized how challenging it can be. But when you're young, the, the asset bases are small anyway. So we can afford to make mistakes and we will be investing for many, many years. But just start. 
And once you have an investment, then you can learn more about it. And then over time, your knowledge will grow and you'll become a more confident investor. A listener pointed out that Fidelity Investments just launched a Bitcoin ETF in Canada and wanted to know if it was investing directly in Bitcoin or in Bitcoin futures, like we discussed a few episodes ago. This is the Fidelity Advantage Bitcoin ETF, ticker is FBTC. There's also a companion mutual fund. Investors can invest in Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars. It is registered in Canada because U.S. does not allow open-end mutual funds and ETFs to own Bitcoin directly. That's why the new Bitcoin ETFs in the U.S. are only investing in Bitcoin futures. The Fidelity offering owns Bitcoin. It's custodied and they own the Bitcoin itself. The ETF management fee is 0.4%. The mutual fund is 0.9%. So it is another option to invest in a vehicle that owns Bitcoin directly. A listener asked, why did you decide to go into the investment advisory field? What inspired you? I chose finance because I thought it would pay well when I exited university, which is a terrible reason to choose a field. I've mentioned in the past that about three years in, I wanted to change my major. I thought about going into engineering and realized I'd have to start over. I probably would have majored in English and literature had I had enough foresight, but by then I was too far along and I was in finance. I eventually learned to like it, and the aspect of finance I tended to gravitate toward was investing. The reason why is because there was so much to learn, and things were always changing. After working for several years in corporate finance, I moved to a small investment advisory firm because I realized in corporate finance I would need to get a new position every few years because I got bored, and I wanted something that I wouldn't get bored at that the environment was changing all the time so that I didn't have to keep moving either to a different location or to a different position. It was that desire to have something that I didn't get bored at that led me to investing, and then I learned to like it. Could there have been another path? Yes. One of the benefits that I see with our children and with the younger generation is just the sheer amount of information out there to be able to make decisions and explore different possibilities. Now, that could also be overwhelming because there are so many decisions. But when I look at my decision process, it was fairly simplistic because I just didn't know and I didn't know how to go about exploring other options. So I just chose business because there was a business school at the University of Cincinnati. And only later did I, once I was well in, did I start thinking, well, I could have done that. Maybe I should do this. In fact, actually, before getting my MBA, I applied to a master's English program at the same time I was applying to law school, and that master's program turned me down, as did many of the law schools or most of the law schools that I applied to. And by then, I decided I'll just go get an MBA, and I studied finance again so I could learn it even better. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, 
generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Here's a question on mutual funds. Why are total stock market funds priced differently? Aren't they the same product? This listener gives the example of the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, VTSAX, and the Schwab Total Stock Market Index Fund, SWTSX. Both of these funds just invest in the U.S. stock market on a size-weighted basis. So the bigger the market capitalization of the company, the bigger the weight. Very similar holdings. What's confusing is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund has a price. If you go out and buy a share, it's $115 per share, whereas the Schwab Total Stock Market Index Fund is priced at $80 a share. If one isn't clear on how mutual funds work, it looks like the Vanguard Fund's more expensive than the Schwab Fund and then maybe not as attractively priced. But that's not really how to look at it. The price of a mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund is a function of when the fund or ETF started. The Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund is an older fund, and as a result, it has had a longer period of time for its assets to appreciate. The Schwab Fund is newer. The other thing is mutual fund sponsors and ETFs. They have a choice of designating what the starting price of the fund is. They might start a fund when it's first issued at $50 per share, or it might be $10 per share. And so we can't compare the share price of a mutual fund or ETF and compare one to another and say, well, that's one's more attractive or not. 
What we can compare is the expense ratio. What are the costs? In this case, the Schwab Fund's expense ratio is 0.03%, whereas VTSAX has an expense ratio of 0.04%. So its Vanguard option is a little more expensive, not by much, than the Schwab Fund. A listener asked, when buying art as an investment, what should one consider? My partner and I recently bought our first house. We need to decorate. We're thinking of buying actual artwork in the form of a painting or two. For the first time in our lives, a painting would look nicer than a print, and it's a type of investment that we don't have already. Our top priority would be a painting we enjoy looking at and won't get tired of. Beyond that, and without becoming an expert, what can we do to identify art that will hold its value? Very difficult to do. That's one reason for art I have used Masterworks, who has also sponsored the show, Because they're art experts, and they can look at where there is momentum. There is a momentum aspect to art. Art is becoming more popular. And there's an aspect of time. Artists that have been around a long time and are increasing in popularity will be more than likely a better investment. goes back to the Lindy effect. But those pieces are expensive, which is why we only buy a fraction of that. Successful art investors that were able to select artists that have done very, very well early in their career own lots of pieces of art, and some of them worked out. Most of us aren't in the position to own dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of art of up-and-coming artists that may or may not be popular 10, 20 years down the road. As a result, I would focus on exactly what you pointed out. Pieces of art that you find attractive. Just having real art in your house brings joy. The process of buying it can be joyful. Having a piece of art commissioned like we have done can bring joy. I wouldn't spend very much on any given piece hoping it will appreciate in value. I would buy pieces of art, let's say two to $8,000, that rewards the artist for the work, the time they put into it, Establish a relationship with the artist so there's a connection there and then enjoy the art. And maybe it will be worth more down the line. Generally, our time horizon is much longer that 20 years down the road, we won't care what we paid because we'll have enjoyed the art for its own sake. A listener wrote, is there a way to calculate expected drawdowns in a pragmatic way from expected volatility? Or do you think of those two, volatility and drawdowns, as entirely separate concepts? For an asset's drawdown, my approach has been to use the historical worst-case scenario. What has been its biggest loss historically? That's what we show, for example, on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. That's built into the current asset allocation model that we use. Rather than volatility, volatility measures the deviations from the historical average return, or if we're doing an expected volatility, it's the expected deviation on the upside and the downside relative to that expected return. Now, assets with greater volatility tend to have greater maximum drawdown, so there is a connection between the two. I just find that a maximum drawdown is easier to understand because I care about the downside not upside volatility. 
that has changed a little bit as we work on a new asset allocation model for Money for the Rest of Us Plus that is focused more on ending period wealth, the impact of compounding over time. In order to calculate that end of period wealth, we need some volatility assumptions, at least historical volatility, in order to come up with the numbers. There was a separate question about using Monte Carlo analysis in this type of modeling work. And what Monte Carlo analysis does, if you assume an expected return and you assume a volatility, it'll generate a series of returns which can be helpful in determining expected outcome, dollar outcomes, monetary outcomes. And that's without getting into a whole discussion on on positive skewness, which we discussed in the rebalancing episode earlier this year. But ultimately, what we care about is how much wealth do we have at the end of the day in order to fund a retirement. And for that, we need to be able to model some compounding of returns, which will involve some volatility assumptions to get there. Stay tuned for that one because it's a work in progress. Finally, there were a number of questions about market crashes, bubbles bursting. What about investing in bonds with interest rates rising? How should we adjust our portfolio based on higher inflation versus deflation? What do we do when the Fed starts to hike its policy rate? At what point will that potentially be a significant risk? There were questions on the model portfolio examples on money for the rest of us plus. How have they held up given the unexpected events over the last few years? What about static allocations versus tactical allocations? These are all connected because... We're talking about the future as well as the past, decisions that were made in the past based on some expectation of what would happen in the future. And that can be specifics as to what's going to happen with interest rates, what's going to happen with inflation, what's going to happen with asset classes. Will the U.S. stock market continue to outperform the rest of the world? These are the intriguing questions that led me to investing, to become an asset manager, an investment advisor. These are the same questions that led me to leave that field as a money manager, an institutional investment advisor, but kept me continuing to grapple with them as an educator, like I do now with money for the rest of us. There are five points I want to make on these type of questions. First, nobody knows what's going to happen. Central bankers don't know. Politicians don't know. Hedge fund managers have no idea. Financial planners don't know. Medical professionals don't know. Nobody knows how this whole pandemic will ultimately play out and all the other aspects from the supply chain shortage to interest rates to how asset classes will return to what about DAOs and these other organizations, what the economy will do, nobody knows. The second point is we all want to know what is going to happen. We want somebody to tell us because not knowing brings anxiety, makes us nervous, fearful. So we are always looking for somebody that knows. And because there is such a desire to know what's going to happen, 
there are people willing to step in, in the role of predictor, forecaster, prophet, somebody that's confident about what's going to happen. Sometimes those individuals are correct, but most of the time they are not. Individuals in those roles are making educated guesses. They're doing their best. Some of them are charlatans. Most are doing their best. I pay upwards of $100,000 for institutional research services to get data that I can use to help make better investment decisions. I also read their commentaries and commentaries of many, many other institutional research services. Some of the best economists in the world. Some of the best market prognosticators in the world that understand all aspects of the financial markets. And you know what they do? They're always changing their opinion as new data comes out. They're updating their forecast. They don't say that they were wrong because they just did the best they could. They made an educated guess. Something else happened. They changed their opinion. There will be constant surprises. And that's what these forecasters see, constant surprises, which is why we do our best. And this has really been my biggest conundrum in managing money for the rest of us. I have listeners and members that want me to tell them this is what's going to happen. And having done that for upwards of 15 years previously, I didn't want to do that because I don't know. I just have a framework of how to look at the investment world that I continue to update. I have some views. I try to play the probabilities. That's why we look at cash flow. We look at valuations. We look at estimates of cash flow growth. We look at many different types of assets, try to understand the return drivers, and do our best. And that's all we can do as investors. That's one of the reasons I'm transparent on my website. I share my portfolio. I share what I'm doing. Now, there are days where I don't want to share what I'm doing because there are experiments or I'm trying something out or I'm not overly confident in that investment. But I believe that I need to be transparent. This is what I'm buying. This is why I bought it. This is an experiment. This isn't. This is long-term. Anything related to that. It's been seven years since I've been doing the podcast and money for the rest of us plus. It's been about a decade since I left my investment career as an institutional money manager. One of the questions that I continually focus on for the podcast, for the membership community, is how could this be easier? Is there a way to structure the website, the service, the podcast, that it's better, more helpful, more flexible, that it provides the tools people can use to help them make their own investment decisions. It's a continual focus, and it will lead to additional changes. For example, the money for the rest of us model portfolio examples right now are publicly traded ETFs. I'm very upfront that most investors should have some public and private investments. Maybe there's a way to structure these examples that include public and private investment. And it's something that we're working on. I've mentioned a new asset allocation model that we're working on. So it's a constant iterative process to run any business and investing. It's iterative. We learn. We are on a financial and investment journey together. All I can do is share what I'm learning, what I'm doing as we try to navigate an increasingly complex world. I'll close then with 
a question from a listener. How are you investing new money yourself? What am I doing? Now, before I get there, there are a number of other questions I didn't get to today that I will more than likely address in future episodes. Questions on the delisting of Chinese equities and the impact of that. Question about staking as it relates to cryptocurrency, the petrodollar, investing in wine. There is a request for the follow-up from the listener survey that we did last year. What did we learn from it? Who's listening? There were a number of questions on crypto, Web3, DAO, others on option strategies, small and mid-cap stocks, gold and silver, the Federal Reserve, tapering, all of these questions. And most of those are topics that we will cover numerous times in the year ahead and the years ahead. Now, what have I done? We're in an environment where inflation has come in at 6.8% in the past year, but interest rates have actually fallen, which means our real return for owning bonds has been deplorable. Gold hasn't done very well this year, even though inflation is up. And I've done episodes on that, and we've talked about gold is a very good long-term inflation hedge, but a terrible hedge from year to year because in any given year, it may or may not outperform inflation. It hasn't this year. The last investment I made was yesterday. And I still need to write it up on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. But I invested in three individual equity real estate investment trusts. One of the research services I subscribe to is Green Street. They are a research house focused exclusively on commercial real estate, public and private, including real estate investment trusts. They run some model portfolios. And as an experiment, this is an experiment. I rarely buy individual stocks or individual REITs, but I did this time as an exception. And I bought three that I'm not going to disclose specifically on the podcast because Green Street won't like that. I will put it on money for the rest of us plus behind the paywall. They are REITs in the single family residential and manufactured housing space. So they buy individual homes and it's manufactured housing. They are REITs that Green Street seems to have the most conviction in, in their models. So I thought, I'll buy them to see how that works out. We'll see. Another investment that I bought recently was a hotel investment. This is a private investment on the Crowd Street platform. It's a Hilton-branded hotel that's being developed in northern Kentucky on the Ohio River just across from downtown Cincinnati. There's a plus episode of Money for the Rest of Plus that goes into more detail on that specific investment. I added more funds to I bonds, inflation-adjusted savings bonds, something that I have mentioned numerous times on the show. There's an investment guide on investing in I bonds on the Money for the Rest of Us website, but I have that's been an investment that I have been adding to. And then finally, I invested, this was late September, in the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF, PFIX. This is an ETF that seeks to protect against rising interest rates. It combines an investment in intermediate-term treasury bonds along with an option strategy that will only be profitable if 20-year treasury bonds are yielding more than 4.25% in seven years. So this is a very specific bet. Simplify has sponsored the podcast in the past, 
And this is a very, very volatile investment. And there's also a plus episode where I talk about how I decided how much to invest in that particular ETF in order to hedge or protect my portfolio against rising interest rates. Again, the ticker's PFIX. Now, I don't know if interest rates are going to rise. Just because the Federal Reserve indicates that they are going to raise their policy rate, that has led, for example, the five-year Treasury bond yield to go up a little bit, but the 10- and 30-year have fallen. Just because the Fed raises its policy rate does not mean longer-term interest rates will go up. One of the surprises we've seen is that we have the highest inflation in decades, and interest rates are still near historic lows. Makes for a challenging investment environment. But those are the last several investments that I did. Again, educated guesses, doing our best. That's what we do when we invest. It's a privilege to be able to share my thoughts with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast with others. Thank you for those that are members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus for being members of that community. May you have a wonderful year-end with family and friends, and we'll circle back with you come January 2022. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a thousand members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.